Welcome to the guest house. I'm Sean Perel. I'm an integrative therapist, a yoga and meditation teacher, a lifelong student of the thesis of our belonging. And I'm also a parent and a fellow human being grappling with many of the same questions that you may be grappling with too. In these conversations, I'm turning to some of the folks I most admire, and together we're exploring the complexities and also the creative potential of being human in an era of radical change. Thank you so much for being with us. What's the deepest silence you've ever known? You can trust the first memory that comes to you. No need to overthink it. As you remember the experience, see if you can settle into it. Recall where you are, what's happening around you, and who, if anyone, is present. See if you can summon the atmosphere, the quality of light, the mood in the air, the feeling in your body. Is it quiet to the ears? Or is it the kind of silence that comes when no person or thing is laying claim on your attention? Is it quiet in your nerves? Or is it the kind of silence that lives deeper still, like when the turbulent waters of internal chatter suddenly part, revealing a clear path forward? Take a moment to consider what might sound like a strange question. Is the silence simply the absence of noise? Or is it also a presence unto itself? <laughs> My guest today is Lee Mars. Lee is a leadership coach and a collaboration consultant who has led diverse initiatives, including a training program to promote an experimental mindset among multi-generational teams at NASA and a decade-long cross-sector collaboration to reduce toxic chemicals in partnership with the Green Science Policy Institute, Harvard University, IKEA, Google Green Team, Kaiser Permanente, and many others, no big deal. Most notably for today's conversation, Lee is the author along with her co-author, Justin Zorn of Golden, The Power of Silence in a World of Noise, which has um, been published by HarperCollins and is now being translated into no fewer than 13 languages. Um, so happy to have you here today with us, Lee. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me, Sean. Great to be here. I wanted to share just right off the bat that it's been really a lovely experience to prepare for this conversation. Um, it's kind of in, in re I read your book when it first came out in 2022, and then I was rereading it slowly and really like morsel by morsel, taking it in over the past few weeks. And what I noticed was that the effect of it was that I was paying more attention to pockets of silence little moments of stillness in my everyday life 
and the sort of tuning fork of silence. Um, it brought to mind some of my earliest memories of silence, um, were, which were really just these kind of like uncliche, crystalline, you know, sort of memories. And, um, and I also think on a very practical level, many of us feel increasingly the tension of how do we participate in the world such as it is and also resource and replenish ourselves and you know find reservoirs of renewal in our lives and so your book is really um, it's really provided a lot of of rich um, reflection and and guidance oh that makes me so happy <laughs> i imagine that setting out to write a book about silence was daunting right it's like how do you namely how do you use language to convey the ineffable um, the essence of silence right without reducing it and and it's really quite a feat so could we begin there just with what oh, yeah. was the journey of sort of conceptualizing this book so we the concept of um, of silence does did create some of that paralysis and daunt, feel daunting, like, oh gosh, it's got to be lofty and really smart and really. But if we just attuned to um, really the interviews we were having with people and this felt sense of silence between us in this relationship place, I'm already feeling at present here. Mm -hmm. So when we would attune to that, it kind of, I don't know, the words would just come and they would surprise us. And the whole book was shaped through feeling into that place of attunement with silence and also never getting, well, not never. I mean, of course we did, but trying not to get caught up in the idea that we needed to be some kind of an expert on silence, which is truly absurd um, there is no such thing as an expert on silence. And even the people we spoke with who were so, who were devotees and who had such beautiful practices and such wonderful things to say and insights would never claim to be experts on silence. So with that aside, was kind of like maybe not weighing too heavily on this expert model of writing a book and not and trying our best to not get caught in the concept of it and instead the felt sense of it and that connection, mm. it just started to flow. So it was truly one of the most blessed, like inspiring, incredible, expansive, joyful experiences, especially to work with my beloved partner, Justin, who just became my brother in this process. He mm. is my brother. Mm. Um it just, it was an incredible experience, one I'll always be grateful for. The experience of reading it, it feels like is sort of like, there's just a thread that you're kind of following through it, not it almost not in a sense of like, we've got this mastered and we're gonna sort of transmit it through this book. It's really it comes through in just the way that you're describing as an exploration, as you know, layers upon layers of sort of, of inquiring um, and learning and growing into. And I think it's one of the things that felt so resonant to me about Golden. I want to back up for a minute because I don't think we can talk about silence before we talk about noise. Mm -hmm. 
right? Like <laughs> that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you you share a quote from Blaise Pascal, who's the 17th century philosopher, polymath, who says, "All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone." And I think we all, at some level, understand, sense that we're living inside a very noisy time in history. So can we begin with just how do you define noise according to the categories you outline as, you know, auditory, informational, and internal in the book? Mm -hmm. Noise could be defined many different ways. We could have looked at it many different ways. In fact, one person said to us, you know, you're probably trying to take too much on with these three categories, which I'll go into in a second. Maybe you should just do auditory noise. And our response was, you know, like there is a big problem there. There's a lot you could, <laughs> our response was a profound, like, no, because what we were so interested in was, of course, what's happening in the auditory soundscape. It's louder than ever. It's just decibels, what we tend to think of as noise, so like that which hits our ears and even our nervous systems. We can feel that like in a really loud environment with big booms and stuff. So we do explore that. And I'll talk a little bit about that in a sec. But in this day and age, it felt important to, to take on information, informational noise, that which is coming through us through devices primarily um, at an alarming speed. Um, so in terms of auditory noise, we know it's getting louder. We can measure all these things like these proxy indicators, like emergency um, ambulance sirens, which are so many more times loud, six times louder than they were just, you know, a few decades ago to get our attention because it has to cut through the noise, the din, um, in order to grab our attention. So that level, you know, it just tells us what our cityscapes are doing. And then, you know, where the park services estimates that noise pollution has increased threefold. And then we know that impacts, of course, all the natural, you know, all these animals and life and, you know, mating calls and different things. And even just what happened during 9-11 in terms of the shipping industry stopping for a short period of time and COVID with airline, we saw behaviors of whales and animals change in that time. So there's just a lot of a lot of really fascinating, very troubling data about the auditory landscape getting louder and louder and the impact on our hearing, on our wellness and our health and in all different kinds of ways. But to stop there wasn't really satisfactory for us. It didn't really describe the love, just the pure level of problem we were experiencing, but also this informational. What we mean is that, you know, with information, it's data when neutral, it's like data, but it's these things grabbing for your attention. With information, the, um, in 2010, Eric Schmidt, the then CEO of Google, made an estimate that every two days, we create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization to 2003. So the mass proliferation of mental stuff, information out there for us to a varying degrees of quality it's just astonishing. And our attentional capacities, what we can process and through our brains, that capacity hasn't increased. So we have a problem, <laughs> you know, with that, with that mass proliferation of information. And then there's a, a, a attention problem. And we were feeling that internally, as well as seeing that kind of externally. And then I guess the area that felt most fascinating to me personally, I think Justin would agree, is what does that do to our internal 
landscapes, our internal soundscapes, soundscapes the rumination, thoughts, fixations, future planning, you know, dread about the past, all these things. And so there's new data about that. Ethan Cross from um, University of Michigan says that we listen to an equivalent of 320 State of the Union addresses every day. That's of internal monologue and chatter of varying degrees of usefulness. <laughs> uh, it can get quite negative, quite harmful, as we know, you know, just that self-talk, talk about ourselves to ourselves. So if we take the auditory landscape and the informational grabbing of our attention and then what we then experience from the inside, it's a very loud world. So our as we were feeling that our intuition was to turn towards silence, that maybe the, some of the solutions for this problem might not come from more thinking and talking, but might be found in silence. Yeah, you, there was, um, I'm remembering this quote from a neuroscientist that you interviewed, Judson Brewer, who talks about like drinking from a fire hose, literally, like what's <laughs> the experience of drinking from a fire hose when it comes to really all three, but I think he was referring specifically to the informational noise, which is, um, which seems sort of most exponentially um, increased in recent time. Right. I don't think, I don't know if we got this actually in the book, but I remember him talking to us just as how like parents have more information about their kids. So you can track your kid and you see where they are. They're here, they're there, but our anxiety about that hasn't decreased. And of course, sometimes it's wrong. I, I occasionally see my daughters like in the Bay where I live in the San Francisco Bay area. So the dot for her is in, in the Bay, like as if she's taking a swim. Like inside, <laughs> like, inside the Bay. Right. And immediately like my mom self gets, you know, she so she has this kind of tra this uh, trying commute to, to Marin from where we live. So I do sometimes like, is everything okay? Did she make it on time? Was there a lot of traffic? Well, sometimes this just creates internal noise like that th that she knows she's in the bay or she's not where but really it's a glitch in this <laughs> in this tracking uh you know so we have more information than ever before but we're also more anxious than ever before why is that that it didn't it didn't calm us down to get all that intel you know that's just one example but it strikes me as a parent yeah i think it's intuitively why in my therapy practice it, I it, I just always kind of come back to mindfulness practice with with my clients because it's about how do we like being in the London Underground when you step the you know the space between the train and the platform and you get this lovely voiceover that says mind the gap mind the gap like like can we put a little tiny bit more spaciousness in our internal narrative and just kind of like can we you know, hold back the, the, the force of the fire hose just a little bit, give ourselves a little bit of time and space. And I think in, it was interesting, you brought up the, in, during the pandemic, in a, we saw nature kind of like find a little bit of the spaciousness and the kind of regenerative potential of that gap. So there, so there's these three kinds of noise. And I think the theme that ties them together seems to be this idea of just being distracted. Absolutely. So what they all share is their unwanted distractions. So if that, you know, if that noise or that auditory thing is desirable, if it's music, 
you know, it's not noise. It's not unwanted distraction. If the information is really useful and it's that information we were searching for and it does bring whatever it was, you know, the best of what we were searching for, then it's data or better yet, like information and the, you know, intelligence in that kind of way. And um, internally, if it's, you know, thinking that is positive, you know, we love thinking, you know, but if it's rumination and that unhelpful internal chatter, so it, that's that's the noise part, the unwanted piece of that distraction. I think that then into the into the noise, you posed a really revelatory question: What is the deepest silence you've ever known? And you asked a really interesting, diverse group of people, um, artists and activists and scientists and poets and politicians, and the list goes on. Right. Um, and it's really one of the like things that I really most loved about the book was just listen, like just hearing about it. Cause I was like, Oh, cool. Like, Oh, interesting. How, you know, the 4am point at the, at the rave for some mm -hmm. people is the equivalent of, you know, dawn out in the mountains or deep communion with a baby in the middle of the night or like it was, it was so, such an interesting diversity of experiences and I wonder um what were the responses that that most moved or surprised you that was well a lot of things so it was so fun to speak to this like totally wonderful wild cast of characters you know and basically to not be confined to any um, certain group, but although we did start with our mindfulness people because we knew they knew where they would know what we were talking about, <laughs> but, um, and they did, and they pointed us in the right direction. But then when, as we started to expand to, um, whirling dervish, a, a sound engineer, a man incarcerated on death row for a crime he didn't commit all these different, you know, folks, um, getting answers like births and deaths and moments of awe. And, you know, that that um, untrampled high mountain snow moment and things like that it was more what we were expecting, but that but they were actually auditorily often quite loud. <laughs> and so what was that? They also weren't alone, which might have been another sort of place of conceptual overlay where we thought of silence as being a solo endeavor, even though that actually wasn't our personal experiences. It's just more how we how I guess we've been sort of somewhat trained to think about it. So the fact that often silence was shared and that that was a magnifying experience, that that silence was in, an internal experience, even though auditorily it might be quite loud, that there was that kind of difference there, that we just kept following that um, truth because that's what they were telling us and that was proving to be true when we used that same lens for ourselves. And that's what really shaped the book and made it feel really quite wondrous. Like, oh, we like we might go anywhere. Um, so, and what really made it clear to us that examining internal silence was going to be kind of, you know, was really that what we were ultimately going for. That this difference between finding the true signal, you know, being able to tune into silence versus the noise was, it was really as simple as that. Mm -hmm. yeah that pivot and it really it sort of captures your exploration of silence is not the absence of no of what we think about as noise auditorially mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and it's also not the same as solitude right 
that that actually silence is this integral and transcendent concept that can be dynamic and can be shared and it's really i think at one point in the book you describe it as just the pulse of life mm. right like that true signal that's how i came to find it is that it just felt like silence is the sound of life and of course life has lots of sounds but the just life like pulsing and growing and reaching for the sun or those kinds of things that for me, it's sort of the definition I'm sitting with now and enjoying. <laughs> Will you share with us any of the experiences that you that you kind of tapped into in the book of your personal experiences of kind of profound silence and where they were unexpectedly found? Yeah, in the book, I and I'll actually I'll speak to this um, the writing experience of this too because I when I would ask myself, because I felt it was important to, um, that we ask ourselves this deepest silence question and not just ask that of others, the experience that came back to me again and again was not what I expected. It was a, it was my experience as a new mom. I have an eight and now 18 year old daughter. Um, and when I gave birth to her, there had been signals that there was maybe a lot of anxiety coming into this and you know, we'd planned a home birth and ended up being an emergency transport. There was quite a lot of, um, that went into that, you know, when we, when we did that transport, it was a pretty horrific storm, quite frightening. And then we made it and she was safe and everything, but I seemed to have kicked into quite a, like a manic period. And I was like a hypervigilance, um, like I was going to do it right and do it perfectly. And I didn't, it might sound strange, but I didn't realize that I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't like, you know, barely an hour and then soon none at all. And it was about 19 days before we realized I actually hadn't slept at all. And then we, then they ended up kind of tracking, um, trying to get me to sleep for another seven days before they used this really like elephant kind of tranquilizer sort of medicine, which I hope to never have to take again. But that, and that's what reset my, reboot my brain. But in that process, I was, you know, had, there was many voices in my head telling me, you know, I needed to kind of beat this motherhood thing and, you know, not have a, not um, miss a beat in my career uh, to continue to entertain the parade of guests that were coming to see the baby and, and, you know, bring me things, which is lovely. I could also keep the grout in my kitchen clean. I could also write handwritten notes. I could also get my bat body back on track. I could do all those things if I just like tried hard enough. So that was like one character in my brain. And then there was another character that was recognizing this sense of madness that had set in, but just treated it a bit like an escape room. I had to think my way out of, and then, another voice that was like, yeah, and to think your way out of it, you'll just record, capture every moment, all your brilliant thoughts. So I was actually compulsively recording myself as well. And many, 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 many other voices. And so it was clear, like, okay, I'm not sleeping. I'm kind of losing my mind here. There's, there's a lot going on. And so I'm sitting in a psychiatrist's office, doc, Dr. T, when he asked me if I ever lost my witness And when he asked me that question, everything went quiet for a moment and all those voices stepped aside and something else in me felt completely quiet and answered him with yes, but only once. 
And I knew that was true. But I felt my own quiet. I also felt like some expansive, larger silence that was holding me, that conveyed it would be okay. My relationship with my daughter would be fine. My marriage would endure. I will come back online, you know, and back into center. It was so reassuring. And so this is the story that kept like coming in, coming in. It wanted to be told the deepest silence. I just thought, oh, that's just such a complicated story. <laughs> and it's just so much. And there's so many other things, you know, but it, it felt important to honor that, that that was true. That was one of the deepest silences. Um, that place of reassurance is definitely, that profound reassurance um, is one that we heard at different times. It wasn't the, you know, death, it wasn't a birth, but it was somewhere in between where I was really in a crisis point and silence was there for me. So, yeah. Mm. <laughs> no, I'm just, I, I want to just say, I'm so grateful for the courage in sharing the story because it immediately, I resonated. It was like, oh, this is actually like, we can talk to, you know, the meditators on the mountains about silence, but when we really dig into our own journey of consciousness of like Susan Sontag talks about, right. Um, experiences that leave silence in their wake, the words that are spoken or a question that is asked or a death or a birth or these moments when, when something opens that um, really that we can only bow to and it, it's humbling so I so deeply appreciated um, your willingness to share from from um, from such a tender memory in your of a time in your life and I was I was it, it, the, the re reflection in my own life was a time when I was experiencing panic attacks like really intensely and I felt so out of control of like what is going on with my body and I hadn't yet really begun the process of integration and healing that was necessary to make sense of well, where where are these you know pan panic attacks coming from and I remember a moment of kind of like feeling like I was just going to like completely unravel you know like that my psyche was just going to completely unravel and going out and sitting on the beach by myself at night you know and and the the sound of the ocean just the rhythmic almost like the soothing the rhythmic soothing of being in the ocean the vastness of the view and just all of my senses just kind of coming into I remember that there was almost an internal, like speaking of the tuning fork of just like, um, like shh, like the whole ocean was just saying shh. And it was a still point for me in the midst of a lot of noise. And I wonder if, you know, I think that a lot of people can relate to those, those kinds of moments, though we don't speak about them very often with each other. Absolutely. I mean, being... I have to say, like, each time we would speak with someone deeply and bring this question in whenever that right moment felt, it's so sacred, just felt so sacred. I feel a little uh, teary remembering. It's really um, 
just the preciousness of this life, uh, the sweetness of it. These words, of course, not, aren't quite doing it, but we yeah. would, that connection, the connection I'd feel with um, those people, the reverence of silence, the reverence of these moments and that shared connection. I mean, I would fall completely in love with each person as we got there. In, and just this like incredible experience of being human in this life. And silence is this beautiful witness to it, presence to it, invitation to feel into it, which is part of the terrifying part, right? I mean, I'm, I get just as squirrely about it as anybody, as much as I'm trying to learn to really, really savor and enjoy and celebrate those moments. That's just what I'm here to do is to help to help uh, bring some celebration to these moments that we overlook. You speak in the book about the, the science of silence. Like what is the biological effect of noise and what is the biological, I mean, essentially noise registers a stress in the body, right? And then you speak about the scientific experience of silence in the body or quiet in the body and how deeply it can kind of reset the nervous system when we really look into it, like, of course, the scientific basis for silence opens to the spiritual basis for silence. And um, John Cage's piece, right, where he just held silence for an open air concert hall in Woodstock, New York for four minutes and 33 seconds, right? As you were just describing holding space for others to share in moments of silence, I just imagine being what it must have been like to be there for that piece, right? And just like, what a journey. And it changes you, sharing that kind of silence. It changes you, it connects you in some way. And Joyce Didonato, a beautiful opera singer, also shared this three-year journey of her touring to talk about peace in a time of chaos and how we find that still point in chaos, what, what helps us find that quiet. And after those three years of touring all over the world she ends up in dc and that final note that i think extends into a lute that extends into silence and you can't even necessarily detect those changes it dissipates and then like no one wants to move even breathe certainly not clap it's like the quote you just brought in for susan sontag like the silence that is left in its wake and and there's just this period of I don't know, po infinite possibility and eternity, all present. And then finally, you know, we, we do that thing where we do something that just happened. But Justin was in that audience and it changed him. He, he couldn't believe that a silence like that could be shared with 2,000 people and that they would all leave different, changed. There's the other side of that which was the more than nine minutes mm -hmm. of George Floyd's final moments of his life and how interminable just to kind of be inside of that like you know time that just that just kind of undid so many layers of mm -hmm. you know protection and buffering and you know try, trying to distance from the sonder the sense of 
another person's experience, feeling another person's experience. Right. Viscerally to get into that. Sheena Maholtra was the person who took us into that moment in a Black Lives uh, Matter march where that was, you know, of course there were like placards and slogans and things happening, but that that nine and a half minutes was spent in a shared silence kneeling with groups, hundreds of people all around. And she speaks to that, the horror and a certain that discomfort, the horror, the connection to that experience. And then it also turning to this incredible bonding experience with the people who were there and the, the young boys she was looking at and the police officers who were there to, to, <laughs> you know, to, to monitor that march and just her own shift of emotional content and connecting to all those people, including the police who were there, um, that all that could happen in nine and a half minutes. In some ways, I just, I keep coming back to how silence, how it, how it um, decompresses time. It does something magical <laughs> to time. So it's not about necessarily taking tons of time out and going off into the, you know, the cave or the this or the that, but just really zooming in. And, you know, when we go into some of those practicals, that's part of what makes it doable for those of us who are still in the hustle, uh, the beautiful, magical hustle of this life doing that. So um, there's that. And then it's just also that silence is a starting point to really just to honor the grief that we really carry, as well as the joy that we're experiencing, that savoring that I was talking about earlier. Like nothing meets a moment of grief, like just a really profound presence in, in silence. I think sometimes that is the most honorable thing we can do. I think that what's, what, as you're speaking, what is, what is um, sort of revealing itself is to me is like getting down to the most fundamental, humble experience of, you know, what does it mean to just to be human, to be here, as you say, like the pulse of life, and to begin even to tap into what is this? What is this pulse of life? So one of the things uh, we came across was this study of a cross-disciplinary study of self-transcendent experiences, STEs. So those are experiences where you're some part of yourself, your egoic self is shrinking, but you're also connecting to this larger being that ocean you know you're a drop in the ocean but you are part of the ocean nonetheless that experience of you know connecting to the larger world you're bigger and yet smaller and that that the common thread of activities that might the, that experience might be found through prayer through meditation but also through flow states physical state you could be you could find that on the basketball court you could find that in my dance class on Fridays you can find that you know you can find that looking out onto a precipice like we talked about or or you know behind your eye shades in a psychedelic you know a, a wise psychedelic experience you know, there's just so many ways these common denominators um all called self-transcendent experiences. So I just loved that there were so many routes um, to that kind of deeply quiet experience. So I was on a walk with a good friend of mine, um, Rebecca Solnit, and we were on a walk um, 
looking at water birds and things. And I was telling her about the framing that we already talked about, the auditory, informational, and internal. And she turned to me and said, it's time for you to meet Jarvis. And it, and like I, that really was a big moment. I had no idea. Now I'd been hearing about Jarvis for a decade. I mean, they're good friends and I hear about him. And anytime he calls, uh, every, you know, it's drop everything there. They jump on the phone and talk because it's just hard to get a call from, you know, death row. He's an innocent man on death row. And they're trying to lay out the, the, um, the key witnesses and all of those, the testimonies have all been recanted. So it was quite an honor. But then when we actually got to sort out the logistics to talk with him, it became clear that he would be the primary teacher in the book because his ability to navigate noise through the most really, it's insanely, chaotically, cacophonously loud in San Quentin, the, the, you know, the, the surfaces are all hard, right? The cement blocks and the mesh wire and, and they're open the, in the tears and men are hollering and shouting all the time, all through the night, even with night terrors and there's the clanging and things. So it's a constant 24 hour cacophonous soundscape. One that in fact, when he went from solitary confinement or the AC, the adjustment center, as they call it, to the East Block where he is now. The doors were thicker in solitary confinement when, and that was leaving, that was protecting him from a lot of auditory noise. When he moved to the East Block, it became so much more loud that he actually had a seizure, the worst of his life, just incapable of processing that amount of you know, of noise. So he needed to deepen his practice, which he did. He is a meditator um, of the Tibetan lineage. He's a um, long, longtime student, close, dear friends with Pema Chodron and has his own practice. But he also wanted to speak to us about the many, many, many other ways he finds quiet, like studying astronomy and working out in his cell and, um, you know, enjoying funk music and things like that, you know, <laughs> writing letters. He has this like just a completely gorgeous penmanship and things, you know, just so many practices to find quiet because the, of course, the information or the informational, the things about the cases that are going on, all that kind of lawyers, meeting with lawyers, all those things. He's His case is currently on appeal. Internally, of course, he, he realized even as a 19-year-old young man walking in there he reached up and put his palm of his hand to the ceiling and he could reach both sides of his cell. And his first thought at that moment was, I'm being buried alive in here. I'm being buried alive in here. And he felt that kind of repeat, repeat. And then he realized, I have to stop that or else I'll go crazy. So silence and the ability to find internal quiet is a complete survival mechanism for him. And he's found that through many, many different routes, which he takes us into and then really shows us as, as uh, readers and listeners to how we can find our sphere of control, the places we do have control in our lives. And you just have to look at Jarvis's life. He has very little in his control, even when he showers, you know, when he goes out in a day, how often he can talk on the phone, those kinds of things are all controlled when he eats everything. So, and yet he still has a sphere of control and he kind of points the way so we can find our silence and, and interrupt the noise in our lives and find and find small pockets and deeper 
um, times of silence. And then where do we have influence? And a beautiful story of where he has influence is the guys around him on the tier, they know he's a writer. In many cases, he's helped them publish poems and different things, you know, they he they lean in on him for help. But they also have started to protect his time for writing. Like, hey, man, leave Jarvis alone. He's writing, you know, like, he, yeah. So like, we don't have control over other people. You may have noticed this, Sean. Um, I certainly <laughs> noticed. Uh, <laughs> but we can get some influence there, you know, if this is I really care about this, this matters to me. And then those things that we don't have within our sphere control, the outermost sphere, if you will, that's like a bullseye in control influence and then outermost, we have to let it go or as or else as Jarvis would put it, you know, it'll make you crazy. So he's the primary teacher coming in to show us the way for finding our um, routes to you know, interrupting noise and, and turning towards silence. And he's become a really close friend. And then he's just a beautiful being who should be free because it's the right thing. Mm. I, re I read his um, book, That Bird Has My Wings. Yeah. And it was, it was really, uh, there were so many moments when I just kind of, I was actually brought into, into silence, like where I just kind of had to pause. And he says, when I think about the fact that society, a nation has sentenced me to death, all I can do is turn inside myself to the place in my heart that wants so desperately to feel human, still connected to this world as if I have a purpose. And I think his, his way of responding to the noise, I mean, the noise of I've been sentenced, right? Which is an extreme iteration of the fear of judgment that so many of us carry and condition ourselves in response to. And, and so his, his expression of like, what can I do but to turn into myself, into the place in my heart that is human, that is, that is alive, that, is, that has intrinsic dignity, and that is the, the source of um, all that I can offer in terms of compassion and connection to others is it, it truly is a profound place of teaching. He, when we spoke with Jarvis, it, um, he's the one who made that connection for us because it's his connection, silence, what it, what he finds in there is that compassion. It's his portal to deep compassion for himself and for others. And that place that brings him back to that relationship with his humanity, even though he's in this completely inhumane environment um, and surrounded by real, it's hard. It's really, really hard. I leave, you know, I go there for two and a half, three hours. I come back and I'm just like devastated. I can't do anything for, you know, it's, it's, you feel it. You feel that environment that he lives in and navigates all the time. But silence is that, doorway to that compassion and his humanity and it's such a beautiful thing to bear witness to and be a part of and and i think the thing to sometimes what i guess we've been talking about a lot lately and i think you'll be interested in your listeners is that that line of you know okay so there's that self-soothing and connecting to humanity and then there's also like you got to speak up you gotta you gotta fight this this is a broken system where this is not a time to just like 
go just keep meditating in your, um, <laughs> in your cell, you know, and, and not, you know, being a fuss or being the ideal, you know, inmate there. This is, you know, there's, there's some shit to stir. There's some, there's some action that needs to change. There's some justice here to fight for us. It's something that I, I think it's, it's, it's like, there's two sides, right? First of all, noise is an issue of power and powerlessness. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Right. Noise is never just about sound. And then the opposite is true. Well, as well in the sense that we think of silence with respect to its role in the experience of injustice. There are those who silence others and those who are silenced. And you offer a reframe, you know, and also looking at how um, leaders like Gandhi have harnessed the tool of silence for social justice. Yeah, I think that that quote, I won't remember exactly where it comes from, but that silence is the work of justice. And Gandhi living into that with his day of silence, no matter what was on the calendar every week even while taking on the British Empire. And <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing to imagine. Like, you know, so I'm, I might attend this, but I'm not going to say anything. But what people said about when he would emerge from silent his silent Mondays to Tuesday, how he would just, the, the right words, the discernment that came from that silence, you know, and pro probably the, um, his own wells, he was able to restore, you know, of energy, his own resourcing, he was able to do just was profound. And I think that's what I aspired to, and not to be Gandhi, but just to whatever in the little ways of my life, am I, am I turning first to silence to really get centered on the signal and that place of discernment and what's needed from me? And the, if the words are what, if there are words to be spoken, that they're the, the best possible words for this moment to meet this moment, the most authentic. And then to move from there instead of in such a reactive way or a clever way or all the ways I get kind of seduced by just to really be bringing good into the world. He's, his, his practice was an, an example of the necessity to carve out time and space and practices of regenerative silence mm -hmm. in our lives. And it's sort of like, well, if, if he could have done it, I think the rest of us can figure it out. And I mean, artists and creatives have known this for some time, but to the frame that the fact that, you know, maybe we need to do that as activists, as advocates, maybe we need to do that as, you know, in family and, and figuring out how do we have those sometimes, uh, you know, maybe they're awkward at first conversations, but where you can sit on the porch swing side by side and not say a thing and think nothing's wrong. This is actually a sign of health mm -hmm. and uh, a beautiful thing to build that muscle, which I know we yeah. want to head towards. It's kind of like, how do we do that together and alone? Yeah. And yeah. yeah. Well, and anecdotally, what just came to mind for me was um, uh, I grew up in a household where I could watch TV anytime. And I did <laughs> all the time. Right? Yeah. Yeah. My husband grew up in a household where there wasn't really, that wasn't really going on so much. And so um, with our kids, it's this really interesting thing where he has really taught me that when a kid comes out and he's like, mm, I'm bored, you know, there's something that he's boring into. Like there's something that's like, why do we want to keep ourselves distracted all the time? 
and as parents, I think it's really, um, it's like we, in the same way that we introduce our children to the natural world by spending time in the natural world, th there's some space of sort of guardianship around mm. allowing, you know, just imagination and creativity to kind of go where it wants to go, right? Yeah. And if we're parenting kids to really let them have that unstructured time, and we, you know, many of us have fallen into this, this hyper structured lifestyle, everything's like they're in 42, like after school activities. And there's just no, I mean, school itself is still working the way it is or not working in the way it is just, you know, on and on. So that unstructured time, that time for play, Oh, the sweet, like the sweet silence of play or being in nature, like you said. So, yeah, I think it's to, this is about like building our own capacity to do that, to be, to be guardians for those around us that we are, you know, to help them have that space to experiment with that in our families and even in our workplaces. Or, I mean, our workplaces, it might, it's like, there's just this level, you know, of, Ex deep exhaustion and then this crazy expectation that we respond instantly to every email and every instant message and everything and our so our train of thought is consistently interrupted so that compassion and normalizing like having it be fun like this um band where they uh uh rosin coven 12 umpteen piece you know pagan lounge band that we interviewed the front woman woman midnight rose she said you know when they're like playing music they have so many instruments and there's so much going on that if it just gets too dense one of them will shout umpernickel <laughs> and that means they need to like bring in more silence and space wow. into the music and it's like what if we did that what if we just shouted pumpernickel on our lives and our families or whatever and just kind of made it instead of like being so serious about it or making it wrong or bad it's just gotten too dense. Yeah. Can't hear the musicality of our lives. Some things that we were told about and have certainly played with ourselves is um, to do what we're already doing, but just say 10% slower or deeper. Think about transitions a little differently from one thing to the next, that we might just take a beat or a pause or a breath say moving, this is from one of our interviewees, amazing man, um, Aaron Manium, but when he transitions from one thing to another, like say a room, just to take a breath as he holds the doorknob to, you know, to go to another thing, when he open, closes a document, opens a document, or even to start like conversation like this, to just give yourself a beat or two. And to notice those moments, like the magic of um, transitions instead of just basically trying to cram everything in. But then how can we do this at work? You know, can we can we um, block, block some deep, deep thinking time together so we can do that deep work and protect in one another? Even like the, the men on the tier who are saying, you know, Jarvis, he's, he's writing. Like, we, can we get better at actually preserving time for one another? You know, carving that out for our partners, for our coworkers, for our friends allowing a beat before responding to my husband like allowing his words to land before responding because we can be in this flow of like but just like and it's such a small thing right it's like one breath and so i really appreciated how many of these um these recommended practices are not like separate from ever it's not like okay i'm gonna go you know now i'm gonna have my practice time over here it's like they're just 
interwoven, these small moments, a few breaths here or there and a recentering attention or a spaciousness to allow something that we're receiving to, um, to like to more fully sort of circulate in the moment um, before, before responding. That'll change, you know, you that little two degree shift, you'll end up in a different continent. I mean, that's big stuff, actually, little stuff, big stuff. But if, if I, when I remember to do that, that conversation with my husband goes, come just radically different. He feels heard. He feels respected. We're, we, we interrupt the cycle of our very, we're very quick. We're very mental. We love our words, all those things. And we'll just get into a whole frenzy. But if we can take those beats, I know if I'm on the receiving end of that, I, it's, it's like, oh, okay. Now we're really communicating. Thank you for that. And if we do the same thing in a hard space and really like comp in a difficult place, if we can do that even more and sit in that fire. Then, yeah, we're really changing some patterns and that's what I'm here to do. <laughs> Lee, what a joy. Thank you so much for this um, rich conversation. I, I, um, I was thinking this morning about this poem by Wendell Berry, How to Be a Poet. And it feels so resonant to, to sort of complete this conversation with this is really an offering of thanks back to you for your journey of, of exploration, um, which you then have been able to offer as a gift for others. I can't wait, I can't wait, yeah. This is just the last stanza of the poem. How to be a poet. And then I love, he puts in parentheses, to remind myself. Accept what comes from silence. Make the best you can of it. Of the little words that come out of the silence, like prayers prayed back to the one who prays. Make a poem that does not disturb the silence from which it came. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Lee. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> hey friends, thank you so much for listening today. If you find value in these conversations, here's how you can support. Become a subscriber at seanperel.substack.com and please rate, review, and share your favorite episode with a friend. I leave you with an original song written by Serena Joy Bixby for all of us still learning what it means to be human. Is it love? Is it hate? Grief or heartache or love? And does it mean to be human? Is it tears? Is it laughter? Is it not knowing what comes after? What does it mean to be human? Well, I'm sure I don't know 
being 